Just as I was about to launch City of Refuge last fall, a new book came out on Le Chambon and the World War II rescue operation that took place on that remote plateau in France. Having just read a dozen or so other books on the subject over the past few years, I wasn't exactly ready to read another. I just couldn't imagine what new information I would learn at this point. Then, I got an email from Patrick Henry, the author of another book on Le Chambon, We Only Know Men. He's one of the voices you've heard throughout this series. And having just read the new book, which is very simply titled The Plateau, he was excited to tell me about it. He said, it is beautifully written and it shows what no other book shows, that the people on the plateau continue to do the same rescue today. This was total news to me. I knew nothing about what Le Chambon and the other villages of the plateau were like today. My limited travel budget and non-existent French basically narrowed my field of interest to what I could research and report on, which was the past. I hadn't considered what the plateau might be like now, let alone that it might still be continuing its long history of rescue work. So I knew I would not only need to read this book, The Plateau, I would have to speak with its author, Maggie Paxson. My first encounter really with the story of Le Chambon was that this aunt of mine gave me a, a book called Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. This is Maggie explaining her rather fateful introduction to the story. She said to me, you know, this has something to do with our family. And I was like, oh, that's great. I'll take a look at that at some point. That point didn't happen until years later, after she had become an anthropologist and spent years living among and studying rural people in northern Russia who were scarred by years of war and violence. Maggie was looking for something uplifting, some way out of the dark, distant, analytical world she had been dwelling in. I remember thinking, what are we doing when we're asking people these stories about their lives? Are we helping these people? Are we hurting these people? I didn't know. I started thinking really, really hard about what the point was and how I might contribute to the betterment of the world. She then had a realization. What if... Instead of studying war and its effects on a population, she could use her knowledge and skills to study peace and a place that might actually specialize in it. I could listen to its stories and I could, I could try to take those stories as a way of sort of building a sense of what do they know how to do that the rest of us don't know how to do? <laughs> what do they know how to do about being good when it's hard to be good that we don't know how to do? It was around this time that Maggie visited the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and had another major realization. I saw this last name, which was Truck May, uh, featured in an exhibit. She recognized it not as the last name of Magda and Andre Truck May, the husband and wife who helped lead the rescue operation on the plateau, but as the last name of a distant relative named Susie, who she had grown up hearing about. Susie was actually her great-grandfather's second wife, and Maggie's mother, who was Jewish, had always been keen to note that Susie's family had had something to do with the French resistance during World War II. And I began to put together this story that this Susie, this, this older woman that I had this very, very light memory of, her family was part of not only the French resistance, but a kind of very special kind of resistance. By this point, Maggie was finally ready to read Philip Halley's book and become fully immersed in the story. She found out that Susie Trochme was the sister of Daniel Trochme, Andre's young cousin who ran two refugee homes in Le Chambon, but was tragically arrested and killed by the Nazis. 
I started, you know, thinking about Daniel. I remember writing the line, searching for Daniel, because he was somebody I felt like understood. He was a young man. He was seeking. He was traveling. He was making, he was wrestling with things and he wanted to be good. I started conceiving that this young Daniel went to the plateau and I followed him. And that became kind of my way through the story. So let's now follow Maggie as she recounts her experiences on the plateau and what she learned about its ongoing rescue work, starting with her first visit 10 years ago. Well, again, it was on this very first trip when I was really lucky to meet uh, a teacher who worked at the Collège Sevenol at the time. And she invited me over for dinner. And she said to me, well, you know, we have in town these asylum seekers. I was like, wait, really? I mean, that was amazing to hear and to learn that there were these waves of sheltering in the plateau, not just before entering the world, but now, right now. That meant that I could see what it was like to be a stranger now. And so that gave this incredible new dimension because my, my plan had been sort of like in this place, a very rare, amazing thing had happened. And are there any traces socially now that could help me understand this rare thing that happened during the second world war? But now I was like, Oh, there are asylum seekers. There are people in need now. So I could learn what it would be like now. I mean, just at the level of social science, it was amazing. Could you say a little more about the organization that was running this refugee center or uh, asylum center? Yeah. So they're called Centre d'accueil pour demandeurs d'asile. So welcoming centers for asylum seekers. And France is sort of divided up into what's called departments, départements, like there's something like states. And each département will have a number of these little centers. They're there to help this process happen. If you come into France as an asylum seeker, you would be lucky to attach yourself to one of these centers. And some portion of asylum seekers are able to do this. Basically, it's if you can find one, if you can make it there, if you through your networks, then you have access to this. So while you're at one of these centers, generally speaking, you have a you have you have some resources, you have a place to sleep. You have people, social workers who can help you fill out forms. There are lawyers who are there. So you have a better chance of getting asylum if you can get into one of these centers. Now, in Le Chambon, which is part of the plateau, there is one of those centers. Um, it so happens that this one is, is uh, it's a bit different from most of the other centers in France, as I understand it. It is made of apartments for each of the families where they get their own door that they can lock. Most of the time they're in not barrack situation, but sort of shared housing um, where there's one kitchen and many families. These, these families get to have their own space. And many of them have come from areas that have been war-torn, dangerous. When I was, so in the span of time that I was there, there were people from uh, the North and South Caucasus of Russia, from Eastern Europe, um, from Congo, Rwanda, Angola, Guinea, and then later on, by the time I'm finishing the research on the book, there was a wave who had traveled across the Mediterranean Sea from Africa, those sort of on rafts who had literally landed on the shores of Europe and they had found their way. And you mentioned uh, that it was uh, a teacher from the Collège Sevenol who kind of first 
pointed this out to you. And I, I just wanted to note now that people who've listened to the series will recognize the Collège Savenol because uh, it was a school that was founded just prior to the war by uh, the Trochmes and the Tases. Uh, and it was still operating uh, when you were there. It was indeed. And I also learned in this first visit that there were students at this school from all over the world, which was an, another sort of remarkable thing for me because it, it, it gave me this sort of window into what it would be like for young people from, from all over the world, from different countries, to be in this really, really rather remote, faraway place in France and to be in this school that, you know, its reason for being was this orientation towards openness, acceptance, and the teachings of nonviolence. And so I, yeah, I got to really, and I was like, how can I get myself into that school to sort of see what it's like and get to kind of roll up my sleeves and get to know these kids a little bit? And getting back to the asylum seekers you you got to meet and spend time with, could you tell us a little bit about them? So because I speak Russian, and a lot of these families who came from parts of various parts of Russia did not speak French yet, I was able to sort of cast off the social science kind of part of myself and just translate for folks. So I got to know a couple of Chechen families. People may or may not recall there was a war, a very big, violent, terrible war in Chechnya, in this one republic of Russia. Um, without getting into too much detail, it's it's the kind of thing where if you were just sort of a regular person trying to live a regular life, you could get caught up in a, in, in a lot of trouble because there were, you know, there religious extremists on one side, mafiosi on the other side, ethnic nationalists on yet another side, and just plain regular old chaos and violence. And so there was one family in particular who had lived in a village in Chechnya. So you know, partly because my all my work in Russia was in villages, both in the north and in the south of Russia. I kind of felt like these folks, I kind of knew them a little bit. When they fled Chechnya, their lives were being threatened. And you gather up all your money and you pay somebody. And that that person, you know, gets you inside of a truck of some kind, uh, some kind of transportation, and you have no idea where you're going, right? You're paying to be safe. You're paying to go to... Europe. So they didn't know where they were going to be going. And they landed in France, not speaking a word of French. Um, and at the time, there was a husband and a wife, four children, and the wife was, uh, three children, the wife was pregnant. And I started just realizing what it was like to get to spend time with a family like this, this beautiful, um, grounded, sane family that had been ripped from their lives you know i fell in love with them and that sort of the 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 story of falling in love with these people these refugees it became very important to me you know how to take this on how to think about their fate how to worry about them what do you do when you start caring about people when you you know when they're in this precarious situation how do you get better so that family i felt very i, I grew very close to there was a, a family, a mother and her children from Guinea, and she fled because her, her daughter was about to have to go through female circumcision. And she was like, nope, I'm not going to do it. Again, a really wonderful woman, very warm, very loving with her children, very practical, very pragmatic, very moral. Um, and 
you know, we'd sit and talk and she'd feed me (laughs) and um, she'd cite the Quran and, you know, how we are supposed to love one another and how there's nowhere in the Quran says that we're supposed to cut women. (laughs) She would cite this to me, but um, another very balanced family. Now, there were also families that were obviously shaken and their children were not in good shape. And, um, and they were just as lovable, obviously, but you know, the winds of pain that, that are in the world, they, they create these families that are, you know, you know, really quite vulnerable. So what did you observe uh, of the people of the plateau um, that impressed you and, and how, how did they interact with the asylum seekers? Yeah, I mean, it's a small community, right? These are villages, you know, Le Chambon is, you know, it ranges from summer to winter, but let's say roughly three, four, five thousand people. And, you know, in the whole of the plateau is 20 some thousand that live there year round, I think. But yeah, so these, these are people coming in from the outside in other communities like that. Um, in France, to see people, you know, who look different, who dress differently, who speak different languages can be quite jarring, especially in times of deficit in in states when you're kind of worried about resources. Whereas, you know, in the plateau, it's not that every last person that I heard speak about these asylum seekers in their midst spoke in sunny terms. It's not like, I mean, communities are communities and people are people. And even individual people probably have mixed views at times, you know, communities have mixed views. But on the whole, what I saw was a community that knew how to activate at good practice, activating this sort of orientation towards strangers, towards people that they didn't know. And that meant just simple things like volunteers, people who would teach French to non-French speakers, people who are not professional teachers, but like a storehouse of people who are ready to do that. People who are constantly giving stuff like clothes, like these asylum seekers need stuff and they would give clothes. Then they would give time. So there was a, something called Restu du Coeur, like the, uh, basically a sort of soup kitchen, but, but with groceries, um, who would give their time for that, or they would give their resources for that. Or, and then this started getting a little more dramatic, you know, when an asylum seeker is refused refugee status, locals would start giving resources, money, help, encouragement, prayers, like what people needed, you know. And then... Even more so, I learned that people were taking them into their homes, sight unseen. You know, they needed a place to stay and giving them places to stay. So basically, it was, to me, humbling, amazing, life-affirming to get to see people in these very simple ways be able to take in the stranger. And this, I think, is what is special. When you When they would see a stranger, they wouldn't see an identity. They wouldn't see a religion. They don't see a religion. They don't see an identity. They don't see a race or a country. They see a person. And I came to sort of see that as like, it's a kind of an alchemy, you know, kind of a, an ability to go from seeing someone as a stranger to seeing that stranger as a friend, right? And like that is, that it lies at the heart of it. And how do they do that? I mean, I don't think there are any two ways about it. They they live the belief in the essential oneness of humanity. They live that. And they practice it. And they know how to do it. 
that doesn't mean everybody's in a great mood on every day and does it the best every day or everybody in the community is, is as equal to that as everybody else. But really in my life, to get to see an example of a community that knows what that means, that sees that and knows it and does it quietly and humbly. I mean, it was extraordinary, really. Do you think that this largely stemmed from their awareness of their history, uh, much like it did for those living on the plateau in the war years? Uh, are they very st still in, t in touch with, with their history in, in this way? Well, it's to a certain extent. So <clears throat> yes, I would say that, that that is definitely something to do with it. So, you know, I'll put my social science hat back on again. <laughs> so, so communities can recall things in many ways. They can reproduce what they once did in many, many ways. And some of the ways of doing that is through stories you tell about the past. So do they tell stories about their past? Yes. Do some embrace that and say, yeah, this is who we are. We do this. I, yes, I'm sure that they, they do. But I think for me, even more interesting as a social scientist is what they learn how to do basically at every moment, regardless of the past. It's sort of like you get good at something if you practice it. <laughs> you know? And they practice this. To what extent were the asylum seekers uh, aware of of the history of this place? Um, was it something they they kind of learned over time or or was it just sort of there in the background? I, I was actually curious about that myself. And, you know, when I was introduced to families at times, the social worker would say, this is Maggie and she's, you know, here looking at stuff from before and what it's like to be a stranger now. And they would like blink, like they'd never heard it before. They'd never heard the story because why would they? that's all nice and everything, but they've got these papers that have to get through the legal system. And if they don't get the papers, they'll have to be shipped back to some other country. So their very, very vital concerns are survival. And so, you know, so they, mostly they didn't know, but maybe in school, they would learn a little something about it. But again, they're so humble there. They don't brag about these things. I mean, there's the museum, so you can go to the museum, but they're not going to, you know, necessarily require, you know, these folks who are living through really hard things to, to do this. So they, they might become aware of it later, but um, it's like the stuff in the past too. If you were a Jewish refugee living there, you know, during the second world war, I don't know what you would know about the place. I don't even know what you would know in general. About the you, you point out in the book that one of the kind of key things you witnessed in terms of the interaction between asylum seekers and the villagers was that children were often the bridge between these groups. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there is a wonderful historian uh, named Monsieur Bolon, who's written a great deal about the plateau. He's a local man. And he is the person who first pointed this out to me, he said, like, pay attention to this, because, you know, um, you will notice, he said, that it is the children who bridge the families. And so what that was like was that the asylum-seeking kids would go to school like everybody else, like the local kids, and they'd meet, and then, you know, they'd have a friend, and then their little friend would have a birthday, and then somebody would get invited to the birthday party. And so the parents, what, what they're living oftentimes was so heavy and so hard. They were really kind of healing from these very traumatic experiences, right? But the children were like, boop-de-doop-de-doop, -de -doop -de -doop, going to school, like oftentimes, not all the children, some of them 
were having harder times, but like they go to school. And so they were like, come on, my friend, you know, bring the friend to the house, you know? And so, I mean, it was really like a very simple social science kind of little pattern. Like that's how you do it. Because also this is a reserved community, like it takes time to get to know folks there. And so they wouldn't necessarily, some random family moves in, you know, from anywhere and invite them over, right, for a party. But through the kids, that's a way to do it. Unfortunately, one of the kind of big things that happened while you were visiting the plateau involved a, a pretty horrific tragedy at the Sevenal School. Can you explain what happened there? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was really horrible. So the Sevenal School had a small number of local students, but also students from different parts of the country and different parts of the world. It's a private school, so you had to pay tuition. And one of its mandates was like, we, we will take, we will accept people from all over, people, you know, young people who are in need. And so one of the kinds of young people in need is, you know, kids who are kicked out of other schools or having trouble in other schools. And so there's a young man who he'd had trouble with his other school and people didn't know the extent of that. There was no knowledge of that in particular. And he had a friend who was a girl who was also from another town. And he, it turned out, was just a very, very, very unbalanced young person. And he, one day, I mean, the college is surrounded by woods. And one day the two of them went looking for mushrooms. And uh, I, I'd rather not get into the details right now, but um, they were quite terrible. But he, the boy killed the girl. He murdered her. And um, it took a very short amount of time to figure out that he had done it. Um, she went missing. And, and, you know, it's kind of a place where, you you know, people were activated to go find her. And it just took a couple of days before they figured out that it was that he was the one who did it. And yeah, and it was it was just a really wretched, wretched moment um, for everybody. Tragic, tragic moment. And the school, you know, it had been having, you know, it's, it's hard to be a private school in France and, and especially such a unique one in a remote area. And after that, it didn't take long before the school had to close because it became a big news story all through France and parents didn't want to send their kids there anymore. But it was devastating for everybody. It was devastating in a million different ways. And it caused me in my own reflections to think, okay, so this is real, you know, this, these risks of taking in people, they're real. This one dear, dear friend was saying to me, you know, look, um, this doesn't happen. Like, we're not ready for this. And I said to her, it could have happened anywhere. And she said, you know, maybe, maybe, but, you know, we're, you know, it's like, we're not, we're not, we're not ready for that. We're, that's not, you know, we don't, we don't know, the, we don't know the world yet. Sadly, you detail another tragedy that occurred while you were doing your research. It was the 2015 Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris. Explain what that meant for France and what kind of reactions you were seeing on the plateau. Yeah, well, again, I mean, you could see in Europe kind of at that period when I was writing more and more pressure from different waves of immigration, but really, I think, a context of insecurity that was taking hold and what happens to countries when they're pressed. And so 
Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment and violence, and the the mood towards people of this faith was had was darkened seriously, and so. You know, people were expecting there to be, they thought, you know, terrorism was around the corner. They were suspicious all over the country. So, you know, the experience of being in Paris at that time and sort of having police all over the place because you're sort of living in expectation that something horrible is going to happen and you are identifying a certain kind of person with that bad thing that's going to happen. And so, yeah, it was a context where the views towards asylum seekers or, or towards any any outsider, they were hardening in many, many parts of the country. Um, and, you know, that was a concern. It was concern for the fate of these individual families who had nothing to do with any of this, but, you know, had come to France in hopes of refuge. But, you know, of course, then with the pressures have only increased since then in many ways. Uh, you mentioned um, uh, observing a sermon by the then current pastor of Le Chambon and how uh, what he was saying was, was actually kind of reminiscent of what André Trocmé was saying during the war. Yeah, yeah, that was a lovely sermon. And I can't remember the details of it at this point, but it was really wonderful for me to get to sit in that church and hear these really, really simple, fundamental messages about frankly, loving one another. And, you know, you feel like if you're in a church that says, aimez-vous les uns les autres, love one another, as, as the church in Le Chambon, the temple, temple, they call it, as it says, I mean, that's the best church to be in. Like, no matter what your religion, like, go to that one. Like, that's the good one, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that temple seems like kind of a magical place to me in my head. And I can envision that saying on the top of the door, you know, I'm not even like someone who likes tattoos, but I was like, I could get, I would get a tattoo of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're giving me an idea. It might be the moment, you know, like, you know, during this uh, pandemic time, maybe it's time, maybe it's time I got that tattoo. Yeah. We actually, my husband and I, uh, we were just talking this morning about this, you know, if you're going to have like a lodestar, if you're going to have like a true north, right, it might as well be love one another, right? Like, because if you do that one, you don't have to be even religious. Like, but if you have that one, if that's it. That's the true north. You're going to follow the right path. Like you can't mess up. I mean, other ones you can mess up with, you know, this is my country. These are my people. This is my, like, you can mess up and, and do damage, right? But if you keep love one another as your as your true north, then it's like, you can be a strong ship in the storm, you know, like then you can find your way. And I think they did it, you know, they do it, you know, that's what they, they keep that as, again, not everybody in every minute of every day, you know, people have crabby days, even in Le Chambon, you know, not everybody is, you know, a paragon of cheeriness all the time, but, but love one another, right? Like as a general orientation, it's the good one. It's the right one. The book basically comes to an, an end as the plateau is starting to take on a, a new wave of refugees. Have you followed what's happened in the years since then? And does the plateau remain a place of refuge? Well, so I stay in fairly close, regular contact with my closest people there. And there's a woman who does a lot of work with um, not just asylum seekers, but basically you know, migrants in need. And so 
uh, she kind of gives me regular updates and sending photographs. So she's intimately engaged in this sort of thing. And the area will activate itself in times of um, stress, like right now, where there's worry about strangers or foreigners or whatever, and they will activate themselves and sort of say, this is a place of welcome. And they'll stand outside the church and they'll, you know, they'll make sure that they get that message out as they can. So the origins of the various refugees do change over time. But as far as I know, that that does continue. I mean, all those people giving their time and all those people giving their heart and all those people like helping with logistics and that, 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 that continues. Yeah. I hate to kind of ask you to crudely boil things down um, to a few talking points, but if you'll indulge me, can you say what you feel you learned about Le Chambon and the wider plateau? I mean, you've done that quite a bit already, but. Yeah. It seems like there are two ways to get where they got this community that is, And one is to sort of grow up in that world, right? Where people know how to do this stuff. They know how to see a stranger as a future friend. They know how to not see people as sort of a list of identities, but as another fellow member of humanity. So they learn those technologies and they practice those. If you're not like that, if your instincts are other, then the community helps guide you towards those. So that's very lucky to be born in that kind of community. But the other thing that I learned, and I think this comes from Daniel Trockney, who was an outsider to the community, and he was raised very well also. He, he, you know, he, he learned great, wonderful values from his family. But I think he learned another thing there, which is that he, when seeking his purpose in life, he fell in love. He fell in love with these children in need, and that changed his heart. So it galvanized him. So if you can't be born in a place where you know these things, how to do these things, you can be galvanized by falling in love. For Daniel, I mean, I think it it was irresistible to fall in love with these children whose lives he had intertwined with. Kind of the the last thing I want to ask, we're in the midst of this global pandemic and, um, you know, it's impossible not to to see things through this lens. Have you had any thoughts in recent weeks about what the plateau can teach us about dealing with this crisis? I think about it all the time, (laughs) or some version of that question all the time. I mean, I think I started out the plateau with sort of having this sense that, you know, when we are living in important times, we don't necessarily know it (laughs) when we're living through it. The people who lived through the Second World War didn't know to a large extent, until it was right in their face that they were living in, in a huge moment of time, a time in which their, the future was going to judge their actions. I had the image, it's like, it's not like there's a, a sign in the sky that says, beware, because the future will judge you now, right? We don't have that sign. We have to figure that out in our hearts. So in the plateau, people without the benefit of that sign in the air were able, because of their the internal workings of their hearts and their minds and their actions, to resist this violent, terrible swirl. Other people in that same time in other villages all over France, all over Europe, were not behaving like they were behaving, right? They had an internal mechanism that allowed them to understand the importance of the moment. So Yeah, there's something about right now in this moment, this strange, frightening, tragic, sad, 
world-encompassing moment where it's like we're being asked to write ourselves. And something about the solitude that we're all experiencing is giving us this chance. I also think it is an invitation to see that we are all connected. There is no, I mean, country, there are such things as countries, but the unit of humanity is not the country. The unit is humanity, all of us together, and we are in this together. So, and again, they understood that. (laughs) Then they understood that already, and they didn't need a pandemic. (laughs) So hopefully we can take this time and learn. City of Refuge is written, edited, and produced by me, Brian Farrell. Our theme music and other original songs are by Will Travers. For more information on City of Refuge, please visit wagingnonviolence.org. There, you'll find past episodes, as well as transcripts, photos, and a list of our sources. In all likelihood, this will be the last episode of City of Refuge, so just want to thank everyone who listened. I've received such kind and warm feedback, which has made this project all the more rewarding. And I also really appreciate everyone who took the time to share this series with friends or leave a rating and write reviews. That was such a huge help and it really meant a lot to me. Last thing before we go, if you enjoyed what you heard in this episode or really this whole series, please go to the support page on Waging Nonviolence and make a contribution. This podcast is funded entirely by grassroots reader and listener support. So please help us continue to do this kind of work. 